Hello, colleagues. This is Dr. Richard McCallum, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, your journal of the American Federation for Medical Research. And as you know, every month, uh, we bring a podcast to you trying to highlight uh, important events that are represented this month or interesting articles that have been recently published in our journal or other journals. Uh, this month, it was really not a very difficult decision for me, certainly as a gastroenterologist, because we have to remind everyone that March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month, the opportunity to screen and prevent um, rather than waiting uh, for colon cancer to occur. And why is this so important? Well, Colon Cancer Awareness Month was first officially dedicated to be March of 2000. So it's been going on now 12 years. The blue ribbon that we often use um, in GI this month, it became the symbol of colon um, cancer awareness month. Although mortality from colon cancer has fortunately continued to decline for the last 30 years. Decrementally, yes, you can show a curve. But colon cancer remains the third most common cancer in women and men combined, second only to lung cancer as a cause of cancer mortality. And it's a lifelong risk. It doesn't, uh, we, you know, we have different endpoints sometimes for pap smears and breast exams. Uh, this, there is no uh, protection here, but it can be prevented. So this is really the thrust of our message today and I'm very fortunate to bring this message to you uh, because of Dr. Isan Albiati. He is an assistant professor of medicine here at Texas Tech. I was very fortunate to be able to help mentor him uh, during his residency here, chief residency and fellowship. And now he has elected to join our faculty and is leading up uh, some of the work we're doing on colon cancer, also inflammatory bowel disease, he helps organize the important um, electors that our students and residents uh, have with us in GI as they learn about our subspecialty. So, uh, Dr. Albiati, I want to officially welcome you uh, to this podcast of the American Federation for Medical Research, and specifically um, as editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, um, I bring our full welcome to you. Thank you, Dr. McCallum. It's an honor to speak and thank you for inviting me for your podcast. Uh, very excited to talk about colorectal cancer today. We've done uh, uh, over 22 of these um, podcasts and we've had a little survey the last year and we, we our, our listener activity goes up about 20, 25% each year. So we're very proud of this activity. It's a great way of disseminating medical information um, to our readers, our members, and for that matter, other listeners of our podcast, which is probably over four or 500 listeners that we're averaging per podcast. So with that background, Dr. Albiati, um, let's focus on a continuing challenge um, the role of trying to 
make an early diagnosis and in turn be able to hopefully in the future prevent uh, and not wait, worry about getting to the point of treatment. So let's talk about you know, what we discuss with our patients every day. Uh, what are the screening modalities um, that you are considering as important for colon cancer? And could you briefly differentiate them as far as uh, what each one brings to the table? Yes. So there are many screening modalities for colorectal cancer. Um, the most important one is the colonoscopy. Colonoscopy is recommended uh, to start in average risk patients age 45. And when it's normal, we repeat it every 10 years. Uh, it has the advantage of detecting and removing polyps. So it's not only a screening modality, but as you said, this also prevents colon cancer. Um, as a method of screening, it requires bowel prep and it requires sedation. So that uh, could be a disadvantage. Some patients might be afraid of the prep or uh, sedation, uh, but it's a very low risk procedure. There is a small risk of bleeding, perforation, or infection, but the benefit definitely outweighs the risk. Um, the, this is the most preferable screening modality. And then uh, another primary screening modality is the fecal occult blood or fecal immune histochemistry test. Um, so this is a stool test uh, that is done every year for screening for colon cancer. Um, does not need a prep, uh, but if the test is positive, then the patients need to have a colonoscopy. There is also another stool test called the Cologuard test. Uh, this is the uh, multi-targeted stool DNA test, and that is repeated every three years if it's normal. So for patients who don't want to overgo all these tests, there are some alternatives, although not primary uh, tests for screening. These include uh, computed tomography, so a radiological exam, a CT colonography. Um, this test um, is repeated every five years if it's normal. And there is also uh, the colon capsule so the patient swallows a capsule that has a camera, takes pictures in the colon, and it's used also for screening. And if that is normal, it is repeated every five years. Um, and then there is also blood test. Uh, this is an FDA approved test, but it's not highly sensitive for screening for colon cancer. And that's why it is not recommended by major uh, gastroenterology societies. Uh, so that's as far as some of right. the tests that we have for- That's a good screening. start. Yes. Let me bring up to see where we are up to speed here. Now, as I recall, the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable Group in the past has set 
a goal of achieving screening colonoscopies in about 80% of our target population. I think we've estimated here in El Paso, a city of nearly a million, that we are below even the 65% uh, level uh, that we might have tried to achieve. Do you have any feelings about where the country is moving as far as trying to step up to this uh, 80% target to try to make sure everyone is screened? Yes, definitely. We try to uh, encourage our patients to be screened uh, by explaining different screening modalities, the benefits of screening. We estimate in El Paso that we are maybe uh, a little below 65%, but this is increasing. We have multiple programs uh, to um, screen patients and search for patients who don't know about colorectal cancer screening through uh, our primary care physicians and family uh, medicine physicians as well. So let me ask you a, another question that I, I see a lot whenever I re read a chapter on colon cancer. Um, and of course, a lot of work done by the American Gastroenterology Association, where one of our presidents had a family tree uh, that was linked to this syndrome called Lynch syndrome. Can you explain a bit about this syndrome, what other cancers are associated with it, and how aggressively do we think about that when we screen our patients? Yes. So there are multiple uh, genetic syndromes, inherited disease that increase the uh, patient's risk of developing colorectal cancer. And Lynch syndrome is one of the most important ones. It is an autosomal dominant disease. Uh, and it, it accounts for about 6% of colorectal cancer cases. Uh, these patients are usually presented with colon cancer about one to two decades earlier than the general uh, population. It is caused by um, a DNA mismatch repair defect, they call it the MMR genes. Um, there's multiple of them. Um, to identify these patients, uh, we have something called the Amsterdam 2 criteria that help us. Uh, these criteria are at least three relatives with histologically verified colorectal cancer. One of them, one of these three relatives, is a first degree relative of the other two. Also, um, at least two successive generations are affected because this is an autosomal dominant disease, so it does not skip generations. And one of the individuals diagnosed with colorectal cancer um, at age before 50. So this syndrome is very important because uh, the patients will develop a polyp, but this polyp very rapidly turns into cancer. So not as the other people, not the other, as the average population. Also it's associated with other cancers, uh, cancer of the uterus, uh, risk of cancer of the stomach, ovary is increased, uh, urinary tract cancer is increased. Uh, these are increased significantly, but also 
cancer of the small bowel, skin, pancreas, and prostate is uh, increased in these patients to a certain extent. So since it's so important, we have guidelines to how to screen these patients. And it's very different from the general population. In the general population, we start at the age of 45, for example, for screening of colon cancer, and we repeat the colonoscopy every 10 years. While in patients with Lynch syndrome, we actually start screening colonoscopy at age of 20 to 25, or two to five years younger than the youngest age of diagnosis in the family, and we have to repeat it every one to two years. This is because, as I said, the polyps that patients will form will turn into cancer very fast. So they don't have the uh, luxury of repeating the colonoscopy every 10 years. It has to be repeated more often. We also screen them with pelvic exams and endometrial sample and transvaginal ultrasound and EGD and those um, esophageal gastroduodenoscopy. So we um, do an endoscopy for their esophagus and the stomach. Uh, that starts at age of 30. And for the EGD, we repeat it only in high-risk population. We also do a urine analysis every year, starting at the age of 30. So this is a general idea about Lynch syndrome and how we uh, screen patients and follow them. That's very thorough and also very aggressive and appropriately so, as you said, uh, this can be um, a very, very rapid conversion um, into colon cancer. Um, you did mention briefly that uh, while we start with the Lynch syndrome patients, so, or the ones we suspect uh, at an early age, uh, currently, even though you said it was 45, you may want to revisit the fact that this is a recent change. Uh, we've been, since I've been around, more or less, it's been 50. Uh, what, talk, talk a bit about why we brought it back or down to 45 and, and, um, what the reasons were perhaps and, and how that's being um, implemented. Yes. So as you mentioned in the beginning, the incidence and mortality from colorectal cancer has been significantly declining every year. Uh, this is true for the population of 50 years and older which is the major population that we have, and this still is the major population that presents with colon cancer. But in the recent years, we also noticed an increased incidence in um, colorectal cancer cases detected in patients above, uh, below the age of 50. And there has been about 51 increase in incidence in this age group between the 1970s to 2000. 13. Um, the change that was recommended by the American College of Gastroenterology and the U.S. Task Force of Disease Prevention in March of last year 
it was recommended to start screening at age of 45. And by the way, this is not very new. Actually, the American Cancer Society in 2018 recommended to start screening at age 45 as well. So the new suggestion is to consider screening starting the age group of 45 to 49 and definitely screen all patients from the age of 50. Now, as I recall, there were some certain profiles that have been noted in this 45 to 50 group, uh, little different sub, uh, subtypes, if you like, or phenotypes than in the over 50. There's some sort of um, little different uh, demographics. Uh, do you care to talk a bit about the sort of patients that seem to be more at risk in the 45 to 50 range that brought this to people's attention? Yes, that is true. Um, the increase in the incidence of colorectal cancer in patients between age 45 to 50 has been noticed more on the left side of the colon, what we call the distal colon and rectum. Um, so that is compared to the age group of more than 50 that have the cancer detected on the right side, mostly. Um, so it was thought that this reflects maybe poor diet, uh, prolonged sitting in a younger population. Uh, nowadays with more screen time, uh, sitting on our desks, uh, watching TV, video games, all these things uh, could be contributing to more cases of left-sided and rectal cancer in this age population. Yeah, as I recall, the data showed a little predominance in females, and it led to some concern about the increase in anal cancer, which has been predominantly in females, um, a cancer that we don't think about much, but um, certainly um, it has resurfaced in, the, um, in this younger population in the female world. papillomavirus, of course, has been talked about. And I think I, I read something about our part of the world here, Dr. Albiati, the, the border region, the Southwest, and the fact that uh, uh, th there may be some link, um, not that everyone else hasn't got the same concerns, but obesity may be um, a little more prominent as far as the uh, Metabolic syndrome is present in the El Paso border region. And I think there was some data uh, linking obesity as a kind of an underestimated risk factor for colon cancer. Do you have any thoughts about that? That's, yeah, that is correct. There are some definite uh, risk factors, including uh, smoking, the genetic syndromes that we talked about, Lynch syndrome, familial adenomatous polyposis, um, ulcerative colitis, obesity, diabetes. Um, these are all considered uh, risk factors. Other than that, also high fat and low fiber diet, high consumption of red meat. Uh, so these are all considered risk factors. On the other hand, 
there are the protective factors that have been studied uh, in uh, multiple studies, including aspirin and NSAIDs, uh, calcium supplementation, low body mass and physical uh, activity, specifically vigorous physical activity, um, vitamin D supplementation, vitamin C and E, uh, some uh, use of statins. And this has been shown in observational studies as well as randomized human trials. Yes, I have a family, um, children very committed to the world of vegetarianism, but even though I've searched high and low, there's no hard data yet that vegetarianism can be a very protective factor, but it certainly may be very important for your total body health. Um, talking about beginning at 45, many of my patients ask me, gee, doctor, when are we going to stop doing this? Uh, do you have any thoughts about the longevity of screening? Yeah, so that's a very good point. And a lot of patients ask, and we get that all the time. And sometimes uh, primary care physicians will send us patients for evaluation. So the guidelines recommend that we screen every patient starting at the age of 45 until the age of 75. Now, this does not mean that we stop screening all patients at age of 75. Actually, um, patients between the age of 75 to 85, uh, care is individualized, which means that uh, we discuss the benefits and risks with the patients. And if the patient is generally healthy and not thought to have major complications from sedation specifically, then it would be a good idea and very beneficial for them to be screened uh, for colon cancer. And this is not only screening, this also applies to patients who did have colonoscopy before, and maybe they had a polyp found, or even if they didn't have a polyp found, uh, and they need surveillance, this applies as well. So if a patient is healthy and uh, has lifetime expectancy more than 10 years, it's thought uh, that uh, this patient might benefit from colorectal cancer screening. Yeah, I totally endorse that, um, get, getting into that age range. Um, many of my friends, when I go to birthday parties, talk about 70 being um, the new 50 uh, years of age, and they're in good health and very active, and we want to go forward. And as I remind them, uh, one good way to make sure you continue to see your grandchildren uh, is to have colonoscopies. We call them surveillance colonoscopies after we've had a couple and taken some polyps out. But uh, the threat's always there. And for a, a small investment in preparation and half an hour under sedation, uh, it's a major investment uh, in your future uh, family happiness. And uh, we can't overestimate that. So we really don't have a limit for when to stop performing colonoscopies. As Dr. Albiati said, it's very individual, but we need to make sure our patients know that the door is open. Um, 
Let me talk a bit about uh, any broad guidelines you have. Um, it overlaps, obviously, other subspecialties or other other physicians too. But how about broad guidelines in in treatment, staging, and prognosis? Yeah, so that's a very important topic, uh, specifically for patients who are diagnosed with um, colon cancer. So uh, the prognosis changes significantly depending on the stage that the cancer was found in. Uh, so patients diagnosed at stage one, they have a five-year survival of 74% as compared to patients diagnosed with stage four, which means that the tumor spread to uh, distant sites in the body. Uh, so the patients with stage four have five, about 5.7% survival. And that's also true for one year survival. In stage one colon cancer, so, uh, it's 91%. And in stage four, one year survival is about 40%. So prognosis is very important. And it's in general uh, better when patients are asymptomatic. And that brings us back to uh, the importance of screening. So when we find cancer early and the patients are not uh, symptomatic, they have way better prognosis. And it's thought also that patients who present with rectal bleeding might have better prognosis um, because bleeding can be an early sign for cancer and it might help us detect it earlier. Um, when I say bleeding, I compare it to uh, patients who present with obstruction or perforation who have worse prognosis because this usually happens late after years that the uh, cancer is detected. And it's also thought that patients who have rectal cancer have worse prognosis than patients who have uh, colon cancer uh, anywhere else in the colon. And uh, there are some lab tests, mainly uh, the what's called the CEA level. Uh, the higher that level, uh, the worse uh, prognosis uh, for colon cancer. So I think we've covered a lot. I think we talked a bit about the risk factors already, which was another question I had listed for you. Um, I would make a comment about that bowel movement situation, um, metachesia, blood in the stool versus, I think just a change in bowel habit. Uh, that, that's a, in a, in a middle-aged person, uh, that, that's a really red flag and that needs to be addressed if you like, and uh, they need to be uh, reassured that we're not missing something. One final question might be um, your own personal recommendations on preparation. Some of my patients, you know, they just look at me and their eyes go up and they say, gee, doc, I'm not taking that gallon of go lightly again. Any ideas about that? Well, what I tell them when I have my colonoscopy, I fast. I fast two days ahead of time with just water, Gatorade, uh, Ensure, Pedialyte, and soup. And so I just go with that on the basis that if there's less real stool in my colon, 
when I finally have to start drinking go lightly at six o'clock on the night before. After about a couple two, I'm passing clear water. I can stop my prep and go to bed. But I'd be interested in any comments you have, how you help patients understand we're not torturing them. Uh, we have some good advice for them to minimize uh, the stress of the preparation. Yeah, very important point, Dr. McCallum. So um, prep is very important and essential to detecting polyps of smaller size and helps us prevent colon cancer. Uh, the four liter, the gallon of prep that patients need to drink the day before procedure is very important. Some patients, as you said, um, don't have good luck with it, uh, but uh, a lot of patients, I tell them, it's easier to drink it if it's colder, uh, for some reason, it's more acceptable, so they can uh, put it in ice, uh, make it colder. That helps, that's one point. Uh, the other point is have to have a better prep. Uh, the week before the procedure, we ask the patients to be on what's called a low residue diet. And this helps, as you said, you will be on insure or um, eating soup only, but yes, low residue diet is helpful. Uh, and um, physical activity, just because uh, someone's having a screening colonoscopy, uh, it doesn't mean to limit physical activity the day or two days before the procedure. We, on the contrary, we want them to be active and help uh, their bowel move. Um, but we, I don't want any of our patients to be discouraged if they cannot tolerate that four liter uh, gallon, we still uh, have alternatives. Uh, we have smaller uh, volume preps uh, from different kinds. Uh, each gastroenterologist has his own preferred uh, prep, but still doesn't mean that if patient did not tolerate one that we cannot do the procedure. We, we have alternatives of different sizes, different flavors. Uh, of course, we are limited to some uh, comorbidities that we cannot give. Uh, for example, uh, magnesium, uh, high magnesium preps to patients with kidney disease. But at the end, we, we will help all our patients to be prepped for the procedure. I agree. Uh, there's many different combinations, including using Dogalax and other assistants. But uh, Dr. Aviar, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you've enlightened our, our listeners, I know. Certainly, I've learned some stuff from you. Uh, you're very informed, and this has been a very comprehensive review. It certainly has heightened our awareness that March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Let's go out there and preach that gospel, everyone, including taking care of yourself and your family and uh, spread the word that this is an amazingly effective approach to um, preventing a malignancy that unfortunately can be fatal. So with that note, Dr. Albert, let me again thank you so much for preparing and giving us uh, such a, a comprehensive review.
No, thank you so much, Dr. McCallum, for your invite, and I'm always honored to talk to you and our patients about different GI subjects. Great having you on our faculty. We're so fortunate to have you and your wife, who's in our internal medicine department as well. So, listeners, um, this is our podcast for March. I uh, have on my right side, who makes all this possible, Isabella Guire, who's uh, so ably able to assist me with the journal and with these podcasts. And I recognize her role. She's very excited as well. She's been accepted to medical school. And um, I'm going to certainly be missing her very much, but she's got a great future and career ahead. But I wanted to make sure you appreciated her contributions to the podcast every month. So on that note, I'll encourage you to look at our podcast um, log, uh, look at other podcasts that we've done over the last 20 months or more, and we will look forward to more. So on that note, colleagues, um, as editor-in-chief of the Journal Investigative Medicine, our major journal for the American Federation of Medical Research, uh, let me say good afternoon or good day for the now and uh, wish you uh, all the very best. Uh, thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>